So this message then, this week, we're going to be talking about generosity, distinctives, generosity. And it has always been something that I have felt intuitively from my earliest days as a Christian, that the church should be. Uh, and sadly, I have to say, the church does not have a reputation for generosity. It tends to have a reputation for being uh, about its own business, concerned with its own affairs, internal issues, internal squabbling, internal division. It has a reputation of being a bunch of, of well-meaning but, but, but pitiable do-gooders and self-absorbed and introvert and inward-looking. Nothing should be further from the truth. One of the distinctives of the Church of Jesus Christ, and please God, this church, should be generosity. And when we talk about generosity, all sorts of filters come and slot into place, rather like if you've ever had your eyes tested at the opticians, you know. Uh, when you go there, they put this apparatus in front of your face, and then they start sl- slotting in various lenses and with lightning speed, and you're called upon to make, you know, what does that look like? Is that better? Is that worse? All these slides and lenses come in. And when we start thinking about generosity in the church, lots of filters start flopping into place. And, and if we're not careful, we just, we just begin to view the topic through our own prejudice, our own bigoted ideas, our own fears. And that's, that's one of the main things that stop us hearing the message of grace that is generosity. Our, our fears. And at the, end of this minister, at the end of this time, I'm going to have a ministry time, but I'm not going to have you all come down to the front as I have in the last couple of weeks. We're going to do what we normally do, is have people go to the right. But I, I really, really, really pray... That God will break fear off you. Lift that lens out of the way. So that you can see God's heart for generosity. If you like, this this talk is going to be something of a journey. Um, During the worship time, and I don't know why, but while Zoe was leading our worship, and I love it when Zoe leads worship, doesn't she do a great job? Give her a little clap, you know. I love them all for different reasons, but I love it when Zoe does it. But I, I found myself on a pictorial journey, and, and it kind of reminded me of, of our visits to India when we've taken teams there. And we invariably land in one of these megatropolises, be it Delhi or Chennai or wherever, because that's where the main sort of airports are. And, and if you've ever been to Chennai or Delhi, or, or for that matter, any other major metropolis. I remember flying into Mexico City once. That was a trip, my goodness. You know, there's more people in Mexico City than there are in this nation. It is an, it's a, it's a, an extraordinary city. But you land there and it's a, it's your, your, your whole, all your senses are assaulted. There's sights and sounds and smells and some things delight and some things appall and uh, and it's just an extraordinary experience. But when we've been to India, of course, we've been visiting our orphanages there and our works there with Pastor Samuel. And before long, after a day or two of getting 
recovered and overdosing on these mega cities, we get on the train and begin a long, long journey across country. And it, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Some, I've been on trains for 36 hours. That, that's an experience. Uh, and, and you get, your life begins to kind of just focus on the compartment and what's slipping by the windows. And hours upon hours, mile upon mile of flatlands, the plains, blisteringly hot. Then after many hours and through the night, you begin to start to rise imperceptibly at first, but you begin to rise and then eventually it's time to get all your stuff together and get off the, play, the, the train and you tumble out onto the platform feeling disheveled and unshaven and disorientated and where are we now? And you get bundled onto a minibus or, or if you're lucky another little train and then you start to work your way up into the mountains. 1,000 meters, 2,000 meters, 3,000 meters, forth, and so on and so forth. I've stood with teams looking across at the Himalayas. And then you walk up higher, you, you take a little goat path and you finally end up, after days of traveling and all sorts of experiences, on the top of a, of a mountain. Lamb's Bluff, I remember, was one. And the sun breaks through. And it's an extraordinary experience. All the clamor, all the ambition, all the hustle and bustle, the beggars, the rich, the poor, and everything, the color the, of the city has been left behind. You can't even hear the clamor of it, the distant rumble of it, like kids playing on a summer's day at the seaside. You can't even hear that. Just the silence. And this talk, I, I want to try and take you upstream. Not just, oh, hit, flip, how much as he wants this time? Brace yourself. I knew I should have gone for a walk in the park. I knew we should have gone to my mother-in-law's today. I want to get you beyond that. I want to take you up into the presence of God. Upstream beyond the clamor, into his presence again. Because in that place, suddenly we realize that something is flowing towards us from the very throne of grace. Pure, golden, undiluted grace. You see, generosity starts... With God himself, it, it flows from his heart. It flows from his very heart. John chapter 3, verse 16. Many of you know this, this passage, this verse. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who sh so whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave. He is the source. He's what you'll find upstream. And when the Bible talks about grace, and we're going to look at a little passage of Paul's in just a moment, 
part of his letter to the, the Corinthian church. Grace is, the word grace is one of Paul's big words. Usually means unmerited favor, something that comes to us. But Paul uses it in the passage that we're about to see in a slightly different way. He uses it as an indicator of something God wants to do for you. Something that he wants to do in you. And something he wants to do through you. But this whole idea of generosity is not a response, a reaction. It's actually part of God's own heart. And those of us who will lift out the lenses, who will break through of the fascinating lure of the markets and the little streets and the pot sellers and the rug sellers and the goodness knows what sellers, and break through and put the pack on your back and stride out of the city, through the suburbs, out into the foothills and up the mountain into the very presence of God, as I say, going upstream, you will find the source of grace the source of all generosity. Of course, in the world, it's very different. You and I live in the, and I love this expression, we live in the real world, don't we? I haven't got time to take dispute with that expression, but we live in the real world. I got my gas bill the other day, Oh, joy. I was overflowing with joy. Anybody else in overflowing with joy when you've got your gas bill? Yes. The world we live in is a very different one, isn't it? But that's exactly why the, the church has this mission and message and distinctive that we call grace, that we call generosity. Oh, if, if only the world was... Well, actually, if only the world was like the bank of the hillbillies. Let's just run that little video clip. Here's Mr. Wilson, the man that called you about borrowing money. Well, howdy there, Mr. Wilson. I'm pleased to meet you. Sit down a spell. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir. Hey, uh, have a smoke? Uh, yes, thank you. Hey, may, uh, may Mr. Wilson like a nice cold pitcher of spring water or some coffee or tea or something? Would you, Mr. Wilson? No, no thanks, young lady. You look all tuckered out. Yes, I am. I, I've been going from bank to bank trying to borrow some money. Yeah, didn't they have none? <laughs> well, none that they wanted to loan me. You see, Mr. Clampett, my chicken ranch is mortgaged to the hilt. I have no credit, no collateral. I need money to buy feed. Well, we got a vault full of it. How much money do you need? <laughs> see, if I just had enough... Are you kidding me? Hey, me. Take him out of the vault and show him the money. Oh, no, no, no. I mean... Would you really lend me the money? Well, that's what banks is for, ain't it? Well, well yes, but I, I'm poor. I have no security. 
Ain't no shame being poor as long as you're honest. How do you know I'm honest? Well, if you wasn't, you'd be telling me about how much you got instead of how much you ain't got. Mr. Clampett, I've, I've never met a banker like you before. Oh, shucks, Mr. Drysdale can outbank me any day in a week. He must be a wonderful man. You bet he is the best banker around here. Now, how much money would you like to have? Well, sir, I, uh, I really need $5,000, but I, I can squeeze by on three or four. Really, me? Go fetch this man $5,000. Well, sir, Pop. Bring him a cup of that cider that Granny sent down to ward off sick benefits. Talking if he don't look like he's coming down with it. Uh, we have one or two bank managers here. Let's give our bank managers a little bit of a clap. a great clip, isn't it? If only it was like that. It's funny. It's kind of, it's funny. We, we find it amusing because it's, it's so counter to our experience, isn't it? It's so counter to what we are seeing in the world today. But the Lord calls us upward, upstream, uphill to himself. The Lord is saying something to his church. He's saying something to us. And it's, it's, it's about his heart and how, as I've said already, he wants to do something th- for us, <clears throat> something in us, and something through us. And of course, Jesus himself takes up this same, same disposition, this same quality, this, this same characteristic. Generosity flows from the heart of the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, grace and generosity go hand in hand. An understanding of God's grace, his favor towards you, will free things up if we lift the lenses out of those calipers on our head that would restrain and constrain us. So now I'm going to read a little passage and we're going to unpack it, spend the next 10 minutes or so in it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and if you've got a Bible, uh, please turn with me. It's going to come up on the screen too, but... uh, if you haven't got a Bible and would like one, a new version, not, not another one, but if you haven't got one at all, that's what we mean, please go to the welcome desk at the end of the service. We'd be happy to give you one. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in this passage, and in particular looking at the Macedonian church. But before we do that, let me try and paint the picture for you so that you can understand what's going on here. And, and in understanding, you will also understand the, the joy that... Paul has in the Macedonian church. So the situation we have here is that the church in Jerusalem, which is a Jewish church, of course, is undergoing an extremely tough time. They've been through very severe persecution following the stoning of Stephen. Many have been scattered, but by hook or by crook, but more because God's grace is on it, the Jerusalem church survives. But it doesn't end there, because there's suddenly a terrible famine. 
And everyone in Jerusalem, not just the Christians, but everyone in Jerusalem is struggling because of the famine in the land. On top of that, as a, as a follow-on from the physical persecution of Christians, the Christian businesses are being boycotted by the wider community. So they're just not getting whatever business is going around. So they are in a serious situation. Now the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, has this big idea. And the big idea is that he will go to the Gentile churches, that's the non-Jewish churches, in the sort of Eastern Mediterranean, and cast vision to take up an offering. Now, ostensibly, you know, bottom line, lowest common denominator, he wants to take up this offering from the non-Jewish churches and take it to Jerusalem as a tangible illustration of the solidarity and unity that we have in Christ. But Paul, who sees himself and, and believes he has been called by God as a Jewish church leader with a special mission to the non-Jewish or Gentile, as they're called, churches, sees that there is something else going on in this. And that's that he can demonstrate to the Jewish church in Jerusalem that is a bit iffy about these non-Jewish churches. They run hot and cold. One minute they say, oh yes, of course, wonderful. And the next minute they say, oh, I don't know about these non-Jewish Christians. And he wants to nail this one. He sees it as an opportunity of taking up an offering from the Jewish churches to support from the non-Jewish churches to support the Jerusalem church and thereby make a strong point about the unity of the body. So that's what's been going on. In his first letter, first letter to the Corinthians, he broaches the subject with the Corinthian church, which was at that time the kind of you know, one of the whiz-bang churches, everything's going on in it, it's fantastic, it's huge, it's you know, lots of life, lots of prayer ministry, lots of healings, lots of this, lots of that, lots of the other. And he goes to it, he visits it, and he says, listen guys, I, I want to share something with you. The Jerusalem church, our Jewish brothers and sisters are really struggling, how about we, we take up an offering? And they all go, wow, yeah, great idea, we'll do that. And they make a great start. But actually, after a little while, after the, the, the enthusiasm, the flush, has sort of worn off, it begins to tail away. And Paul is due to return to the Corinthian church to, to collect the offering, which supposedly they've been avidly working for, you know, doing car washes and car boot sales and all the rest of it, and the rest. When he hears disturbing news, and the disturbing news is that actually it's just petered out and they've not done anything. So he's very agitated. So he has to write a second letter on one or two other matters. You can read that yourself. But he also wants to challenge them to save their blushes and his blushes so that when he arrives, the offering for the Jerusalem church is there and ready and there's no embarrassment, right? I don't want to complicate the matter, but it's further complicated, and I'll tell you this just so that you get the whole counsel of it, that actually he's treading on eggshells, because he's had some pretty harsh things to say about the Corinthian church in all its splendor. And they're a little bit itchy with him, and so he's a bit nervous about doing this. It comes through in his letter. Read it later, pick it out. 
A little bit sensitive. He never once uses the word money. He just talks about grace the whole time. But anyway, you've got the background. And then we come to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And he says, And now, brothers, sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it With the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay. I'm I'm chucking a lot of information at you. I hope that I'm not being overambitious. But anyway, let me tell you something about the Macedonian church before we unpack what is a relatively simple point, really. The Macedonian churches, they hadn't had a famine, but they were well known for living in abject poverty. They should have been very wealthy, and at one time they had been. Up there in Macedonia, they had many of the silver mines, King Solomon's mines and all the rest of it. They had the, 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 you know, the, the gold and the silver. And of course, what had happened was, was when the Romans um, came in and, and took over the land, they commandeered all the silver mining operations. The mining, the refining, the distribution. And, and what was once a wealthy community was suddenly very, very poor because the whole local economy was skewed into mining. They didn't have acres of corn and this, that, and the other. They did mining. They provided the silver for the, the known world and did very nicely on it. Thank you very much. But the Romans came in and they took that all away. And suddenly, apart from being able to get jobs down the mines, there wasn't much left for them. So they were really struggling, really struggling. Not just for a season or a harvest, but year in, year out. So when this big idea of Paul's was muted and word got out, everyone assumed that the Macedonian church wouldn't be able to do anything because, you know, man, they're really hurting up there. And and Paul is just blown away. Paul is blown away because the Macedonian church, without any kind of coercion, without any kind of encouragement from anyone that he's aware of, comes and, what does it say here? They urgently plead, verse 4, they urgently plead. This picture is on bended knees, begging, begging. For the privilege of being generous. And Paul says, wow, guys, 
That is incredible. That is incredible. When everybody knows how it is in Macedonia, we pray for you guys. We send you food parcels. And yet here you are on bended need. Your leaders have come and are urgently pleading, begging for the opportunity to be generous. And, and Paul spends a little bit of time unpacking this because it says in verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Something's going on in the Macedonian church that is not necessarily a distinctive in the rest of the early church. Maybe it's not even a distinctive today. But something is kicking in. Something is happening in the Macedonian church. There's a quality, a distinctive about the Macedonian church that is actually remarkable. Because their response to this is overflowing joy. Now, hands up if you've ever known joy. Please, God, let everyone put their hands up. <laughs> Not everyone. Joy is a, a fleeting thing. You know, about three weeks ago, I wanted to do something on my car, and I went to my, the, the shelf in my wardrobe where I keep all my work clothes, you know, my really greasy old clothes, and pull them on and what have you, and I looked to right sight, and I put my hand in my back to- pocket, and I found 20 quid! <laughs> I didn't know I had it. 20 quid. I knew joy. <laughs> Isn't it funny how joy is something spontaneous. You can't plan for joy. Joy is something that overtakes us. Joy is something that makes us do a little hop, skip and a jump. And what Paul is saying, he adds an adjective to the, the joy of the Macedonian church. He says it's overflowing joy. That implies that there's a source there. They, they're living in a state of joy. Maybe they're lightheaded because they're starving. I don't know, but I think not. I don't think it's that. There's something about the Macedonian church that in spite of everything else, in spite of everything else, there's overflowing joy. And the clue is a little bit further on. Verse 5, he says of them that they did not do as we expected. Well, we've got that, Paul. We were expecting nothing of them, so anything would have been a surprise. But they did not do as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Ah, this is absolutely the key verse of this passage. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us in keeping God's will. You see, when that big idea came round from Paul, they didn't sort of look weary and hung dog and. <sighs> all right, how much do you want? Where's my wallet? Give me my wallet. What is it? Well, we're all going to give 20, 20 quid. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Hey, hallelujah. Oh, fabulous. Boy, I feel overflowing with joy. He's just taken my 20 quid. No, it was different for them. You see, they'd learnt that lesson that if you're going to do the Christian life, 
You've got to strike out on your own or strike out together. You've got to leave the marketplace and all its trinket stores and hubble and bubble and hubbub and all the souvenirs and the takeaway shops and the street cafes, as alluring as it all is, as safe as it seems. You've got to leave that place and go upstream. Because it's only when you come into the presence of God and fall before Him where you A, recognize your need of grace, but also that you recognize that there is the source of all grace flowing into you from the very throne of God. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't put a little dam or a lock gate if you'll do the hard work of pressing on into the presence of God, if you'll you'll shrug off everything that would hinder in order to know God and his grace and his mercy towards you, you will find not only something that refreshes your soul, but something that changes your worldview. Something that takes off these calipers, and that's a pretty good word for them, off your eyes, chucks them away, no lenses, and opens the eyes of your heart. And suddenly everything finds a new perspective. We need that new perspective. We need that new perspective in our society, but man, we need that new perspective in the church. You know, uh, I'm going to speak about myself, and you can decide whether or not it works for you, but when I'm under pressure, when I feel threatened, when I feel insecure, I will revert to those things or hold all the more tightly to those things where I get my comfort, my security. And often this whole business of money, for me, is where I find myself holding on tightest. Because as long as I've got this and I've got that and this in place and that for the future, I'm okay. Whatever comes, I'm all right. Now, some of you are in that place. Some of you are not in that place. You're wondering how you're going to get through this month. As a friend of ours said, he said, many of us are living in in that place where the money runs out and there's... Too much month to go. I want to say this because we have a wonderful ministry in this church. Ian and Louise headed up for a number of years. We have a thing called money management. And behind the scenes, this ministry has been helping people sometimes work through quite extraordinary levels of debt. Sometimes interceding for them in court. Yes, working out budgets that they can maintain and sustain. There are things that can happen. I I, want to plug that ministry. Check it out on the website. But that having been said, and we all need to learn how to budget well. When When the going gets tough, I want to know that there's something behind me. And for me, it may not be for you, it's money. And when I'm in that place, 
ducking, diving, bobbing, wheeling, dealing, all the rest. I'm in the marketplace. I'm down there. I've got a stall in the market. But you want to break free from that. Because that will warp your perspective. And you will never find that grace that sponsors within you generosity in the marketplace. It's not there. It's not to be found there. It's only in the presence of God where you begin to realize just what his intentions are for you. That you begin to let go and let God. Where you begin to believe that he's kindly disposed towards us. Where you begin to believe that actually this wasn't his plan for you and there is a way out and a way on. And as you lean back into his love, as you drink from that living water that flows from his presence, something inside of you begins to let go. And the money thing is not so important. And the church begins to discover and rediscover that distinctive called generosity. I remember when we were I can't remember which phase it was. I've got so many stories about you as a people. I brag on you. I brag about you. I hope I'm not being untoward, but I, I have stories about your generosity and your self-sacrifice. One of the ones that just comes to mind, it's not the best one or the only one, but I remember when there was a stage in which we were developing this place and the Lord spoke to us very clearly about if this was going to be good news for us and this community, it needed to be good news for the poor as well. And we, in the space of about two weeks, raised £42,000 and built a life centre, community life centre in Govindapuram in, in Kerala. And the stories came in about how that money was raised. One dear lady told me how her ambition in her little house, lovely cosy home, but her, her sort of ambition was to get a new fireplace in. And she'd been saving here and saving there to uh, raise the money for a new fireplace, a new fire surround and everything. But when this call came in, immediately she knew what that money was that she'd been saving all that long time was for. She gave the fireplace money to the community life centre. Another lady, very different economic background, another family, saving up for a, a real beautiful flat screen TV. I mean, a nice one. I mean, let's be honest, a really nice one. No, no, come on. No, a really, really nice flat screen TV. A big sucker. The appeal came out. The family went home, the car all quiet had a family conference over Sunday lunch. We can manage with the old one. We need to give that money that we set apart from that to this project. We're all capable of great generosity. I've often been moved as I've gone on in this ministry about the incredible capacity of, of Christians in particular, but people generally to make to sacrifice themselves and things that they care for. It's an extraordinary thing. It's part of the image of God still in us. 
We have this capacity for self, you know, forgiving of ourselves. It's not a place we live in, but it's a place we visit from time to time. But the church of Jesus Christ needs to, to not just do well on one Sunday when there's an especial appeal for a community life-centering Govindapuram. We all need to go upstream to catch a fresh vision of the love of God for us, his kindly disposition towards us, his grace for us, his generosity towards us. We need to breathe deep of that high air. We need to drink deep of that sparkling stream so that when we go back into the marketplace, the real world where you and I live, people begin to say of us and of the church, you know, they're a very generous people. Not just didn't they do well in 1962, but they're a very generous people. So here we are. It's the heart of the matter. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to complete that which they set out to do. He's saying it's a test of their faith. He's saying to the Corinthian church, look, you may speak in tongues, you may do this, you may have a wonderful worship team, you may do the other, you may be welcoming, you may make great cappuccinos and you may pray for the sick. But listen, let this be something that you excel in. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Give yourself first to the Lord. Press on into his presence. Let him change and transform you. Let let him give you a new high view. Where you can see the city as a little dot down there. And where the sunshine of his presence just leaves a lasting memory on your heart, your spirit. And then, give out of that. And not out of the, oh, here we come, here's the offering basket. Have you got any money? Have you got any change? Oh dear, flipping heck, I knew I left my wallet on the side at home. I mean, just keep your change. Keep it. God loves a cheerful giver. So, the grace of giving generosity. What holds us back? Fear. And this morning, if this talk has irritated you, if this talk has got under your skin and appalled you, if your heart has sunk, instead of being elated by what you've heard, well then, at the end of the service, when we, when we have our prayer ministry time, I would invite you to go to my right, your left, and get some prayer. and Just say, I'm afraid. Because it is the spirit of fear not trusting in God's goodness and kindly disposition towards us. It is this spirit of fear that holds us. It's the spirit of fear that drives out that Macedonian spirit, which knows that in the big scheme of things, God is faithful. God is just. God is true. And most importantly, God is full of grace. Let's all stand. Let's have the worship team back up.